Chapter 20 of The Keeper of the Bees. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Keeper of the Bees by Gene Stratton Porter. The Scout Mutiny. It was midsummer in the garden, long golden vacation days. The bees were happy. Innumerable swarms had stretched the rows of hives not only down the sides of the garden but well across the foot, and Jamie was beginning to feel that by the coming season some of them must be disposed of or he would have more than he could manage. The flowers were blooming in a mad riot of color. The trees were laden with fruit. He was so nearly a well man that he was beginning to use his left arm almost without realizing that he was using it. Carefully he was oiling the soft skin. It was still protected with a light pad. The bandages were so nearly negligible he did not even notice them or the soft strap across his shoulders that held them in place. Every day was a day of work that he loved, in a location that he loved. Every evening he found refuge in the books that taught him the things that he needed to know to master his new profession. And now he was beginning to branch out to those other books, the emanations of the brightest minds of ages reaching back to the earliest collected beginnings of literature. With the advent of an income, with the assurance that he would not be again at the mercy of the government or the public, Jamie had ventured to subscribe to half a dozen of the leading magazines in which he was most interested, and they carried to him wonderful tales of a world with which he had lost touch for a long period. Some of the things he learned from them were interesting, highly educative, and some of them were alarming, and he was set to wondering where our country was heading, exactly what was to be expected as an ending for peculiar beginnings that were being made. Some of the things that he found, which seemed to be casually accepted and written of, and to be bandied about in the world in print and conversation, set his cheeks flaming, and the reserves of his Scot soul felt outraged. There began to be born in his breast the feeling that it was time for him to go out in the world, to break his bands of security and of peace in the garden, and hunt up the men who were forming the legion to which he should belong. He began to listen on slow, sleepy Sabbath mornings for the tolling of the church bells and to wonder if there might be such a thing anywhere within a reasonable distance as a Presbyterian church with a minister just near enough to Scotland to have a little bit of a loved burr in his voice. He began to feel that the time was coming very shortly when he was going to fare forth in search of these things. He was thinking of it very strongly one morning, 
when the hose he was handling had brought him to a petunia bed just across from the jacaranda tree, and he stooped to flood the roots of the brilliant flowers. His scouting ears caught a rush of feet, a slam of the gate, and there flashed into view the little scout forging toward him with both arms extended, a distorted face, and clothing fairly torn to ribbons. Jamie dropped the hose and whirled with arms outstretched. He caught on his breast the little quivering figure and eased himself down to the seat under the jacaranda and held the child tight. A twisting, shaking figure, physically nauseated, tears so big that they gushed and rolled in a torrent. All he could do was to gather up the little bundle and hold it together and wait. He began rubbing his cheeks over the small head, whispering as best he could words of consolation. Little Scout, dear little Scout, he panted, tell Jamie what has hurt you so. Oh, what has hurt you so, little Scout little partner. Then suddenly, Jamie gathered the little figure tighter in his arms and thrust his lips down through the hair to a grimy cheek, and with all the intensity in his body, he repeatedly kissed the little scout. Sweetheart, he whispered, darling little sweetheart, tell Jamie, tell Jamie what's the matter. And by and by, from the huddled bunch on his breast, there came a panted whisper. Who told you? Nobody told me anything, said Jamie. You tell me. What is it? What has happened to you? Where have you been? If anybody's hurt you, war rose in Jamie's breast. Red war flamed in his eyes. Did any boy lay a finger on you, he panted. The little scout moved in negation. Who then? What? urged Jamie. I'm ripe for murder. Tell me where I'm to go, what I'm to do. The bleached little head buried deeper in his breast. The grimy hands gripped him tighter. Something was being whispered. Jamie almost broke his neck to drop his ear to hearing distance. There came in wheezing gusts. My scouts! Another world of tears and another panted gasp. Mutinied on me. They wanted to go off down the beach, away, alone, and strip bare naked and swim. And, and I... Jamie held tight and spread his big hands over as much of the little body as he could cover. He leaned low to catch the whisper. I couldn't, and they mutinied on me, and they nearly tore me to pieces. Do you mean, asked Jamie, that those little brutes pitched on to you and beat you? The little scout wormed in his arms. I reckon I had it coming panted the child. I, I reckon I've beat them up often enough. But I was tired this morning. I couldn't get the old grip on them. 
I couldn't handle them, and they got me. What happened? asked Jamie breathlessly. A man came along, a man on horseback. He reached down and picked me up on his horse and brought me along out of their reach until I said, let me off here. Oh, Jamie, I'm killed. I'm going up the rock and I'm going in the undertow where I can't get myself out if I want to. Jamie held on tight. Why, you little idiot, you can't do that, he said. Think of your father. Think of your mother. Think of Nanette and little Jimmy. Think of me. You can't do that. I ain't got anything left, sobbed the little scout. There ain't anything I want to do. If I can't lead my scouts, I don't want to play anywhere. Look here, said Jamie harshly, his voice roughened with emotion. Look here, darling. You got a wrong start because you didn't like what girls do, and you've been running with the boys until you have about unsexed yourself. And what have you got out of it? Embarrassment and disappointment and a beaten body. You needn't think you are the only girl in the world of your kind. You needn't think that there aren't a lot of others who don't like to stay in the house and do the things that girls are supposed to do. You needn't think that to be a scout master, you have got to be the master of a pack of boys. Damn them! Jamie arose. You come on in the house with me, he said. I'm going to clean you up and take you to your mother, and she's going to put some decent clothes on you, and we are going off by ourselves for today. We are going off someplace you will like. We are going to do something you will want worse than anything in the world. I'll tell you right here and now what we are going to do. We are going to get you the finest little horse that ever stepped. I've been looking for him and advertising in the papers for him, and I've found him. I've got him all ready for you. I was just waiting a few days because I had lumber ordered. I was going to build a stable over on your side next to nobody. John Carey was coming tomorrow to help me, and when I got it done I was going to have the little horse there to surprise you. But he can wait for a stable. We will go and buy him today. The little scout slid from Jamie's arm and stepped in front of him. An outstretched hand was a mute invitation for the partnership handkerchief. Jamie supplied it, and the little scout used it. A real horse? A nice horse? My very own horse that nobody rides but me? Yes, said Jamie, ready to promise anything in the world. Yes. We can buy him? We can buy him today? Yes, said Jamie, still ready to go the limit. That's the berries, said the little scout. Then I won't go in the undertow. Then I won't care any more what fat old Bill and the nice child and angel face say. If any of them wants to have the sword and all the emblems of office, they can. They can have the robber's cave and the bandit stand. They can have the Indian fighting. I'll go with you, and I'll have my horse. Sure you'll have your horse, said Jamie. 
I'll hike with you and we'll see what's in the canyons and what we can find that you will be interested in outdoors. And you know, if you would go and investigate, you would find that there are girls' camps where they do all the things in scouting stunts that the boys are doing. And I haven't a doubt either that they do some of them better. The ex-scout master straightened up and drew a deep breath. Do you think, Jamie, do you think, honestly, that they do them better? Bet you two bits they can, said Jamie. I'll find out where headquarters are, and I'll go with you, and we'll see. But I bet you two bits that those girls can lay a fire right and make the sparks fly quicker. I bet they can set a tent, do anything they want to do, and do it quicker than those scouts you have been training with anyway. I wouldn't have anything to do with freelance scouts. They're outlaws. I'd let those boys go hang. Then the keeper of the bees ventured further. I'd let them go hang, Jean. If I were in your place, I'd find out where there were some girls of my kind, and I'd stick to my own kind. And with the training you've had, and with the stunts you've been doing, there isn't a doubt in my mind but that you can work up so that in maybe six months you can be the leader. You can do something that isn't play, but is real, constructive scouting work, something that gets you somewhere. You can train yourself so you might be able to help stop a mountain fire, or find a lost child, or do something wonderful and worthwhile, something that isn't just play. And then there is your own horse you can have and you can ride. I can ride a bit myself. There are none of the tricks of riding that I can't teach you. The handkerchief was restored to its owner. Jean Meredith began to feel over her body to see if she had sufficient clothes remaining to cover her. Is it a bargain? asked Jamie. Are you going to take the car and go down the beach? to the stables where this particular horse I am talking about is waiting for you? There are three bully ones. You can take your choice. Shall we go? Oh, boy! The cry came in almost breathless wonder. Shall we go? Shall we paint the petunias? Shall we put the scent in the roses? Shall we march past the black Germans? Shall we flip the dirt off our shoulders onto the eyes of the first Boy Scout we meet? I'll tell the world we shall. And fat old Bill and the nice child and angel face can just plumb go right straight to perdition. I wouldn't ever play with them again, not if they came and got on their knees. Not if they begged me with tears in their eyes. I wouldn't ever play with them again. Yes, interrupted Jamie, and I'll wager you another two bits. I'll wager you two bits that inside of a week they'll come and ask you to play with them again. Jean Meredith stuffed the tail of her shirt inside the band of her breeches. The simper that she marshaled on her smeary, teary face was something exquisite. Her body bent in a curve. The index finger of her left hand lightly touched her lower lip. With the right hand, she flicked a chunk of adobe that was not in the least imaginary, 
from the left shoulder. Oh, thanks, she said, with the most flapperish of flapper accents. Aw, oh, thanks, my dear boys. You are charming, simply charming, but I have outgrown you. I have graduated from small folks to a higher class. Kindly amuse yourselves by eating my dust while I ride by on my own horse. Suddenly the exquisite flapper became the little scout again. Jamie, is my horse a he-horse or a she-horse? There are two or three, said Jamie. I haven't settled definitely. There are two or three I'm going to lead you to. I'd like to see if you like the one best that I like best. In any event, you may have the one you want. All right, said Jean. All right. What I was thinking about was that if my horse is a he, I'm going to name him Chief. And if she's she, I'm going to name her Swallow. And whichever one it is, I am going to get there on it, no matter if it's straight up a mountainside or right into the ocean. My horse and me are going to swim same as we are going to ride. All right, said Jamie, reaching a hand that was instantly accepted. Let's go. When Jean was properly dressed, and they were settled on their car headed toward the corral, where Jamie had learned there were riding horses being sold several miles further down the beach, Jamie again broached the subject of horse. Jean, he said, have you any very definite idea in your head as to exactly what kind of horse you want? Obliquely, Jamie was watching. He saw a slightly sullen look, a slight stiffening of the figure, and he knew what it meant. There was a minute or two of silence, and then, instead of an answer to his question, there came a question on a different subject. Ain't you ever going to call me Little Scout any more? Jamie thought hard and fast. No, he said. I'm not. Not ever again. I'm going to call you by your name after this. It's a perfectly good name and one that I like very much. It's Scott, and so am I at heart. So as far as I am concerned, you are done masquerading. The rest of the way, when you are with me, you are going to be what you are. You lay pretty stiff stress on people playing the game square in this world. You've gotten away with it in a good many instances all right so far. But from now on, you're getting big enough that you'll strike some pretty unpleasant things if you undertake to keep on masquerading. Do you mean that you don't want me to wear breeches anymore around you? Why, no, foolish, said Jamie. I think breeches are the thing for you to wear when you work in the garden and ride and during play hours and when you're exercising. What I want you to do is stop playing with the boys and learn how fine your own sex can be. You needn't think you are the only girl in the world that likes to ride a horse 
or to climb, or to be outdoors, or to command a scout company. I want you to get on your own side of the line, where you belong. Jean thought that over carefully, as was her custom. Then she said slowly, but in more cheerful tones, Well, maybe you're right about it, but you'll have to show me. All right, said Jamie, I'll show you. The first thing we're going to do is head right straight for a number I have here in my pocket. We are going to join you up to a Girl Scout camp, and I am going to be your escort to a meeting once a week. If they won't let me inside, I'll hang around outside until you get through. But you needn't tell me that any girl joins a Girl Scout camp without being the kind of girl who likes to swim and paddle a canoe and ride a horse, and be out of doors. And you needn't tell me that among the number of girls it would take to form a camp, there aren't going to be at least two or three that are going to be nice-looking girls and nicely behaved girls, girls of good families, girls with whom your mother would be glad to have you associate. All right, said Jean. We'll play follow my leader. You set the pace, and I'll be right after you. They had no difficulty whatever in finding the number of a secretary who gladly registered Jean Meredith, furnished the necessary cards and equipment, and Jamie paid the bills. When they were once more on the car and headed for the corral, Jean looked at him. Jamie, she said, that was a good deal of money you paid there. I didn't see how much, but it was more than you must pay for me. You must take it out of my share of the next sale of honey. I'll tell Dad that you did. Never you mind about that, said Jamie. Your father and I will attend to the finances. You needn't fret about my spending a little money on you, because I haven't started to spend money yet. There are two more things I'm going to do before this day is over. Both of them are going to cost me some money, and it will be the easiest money that I ever spent, because if you hadn't gotten my inheritance back for me, I wouldn't have had any money to spend on anything, with the exception of what I've saved out of my earnings this summer. If it hadn't been for you, it wouldn't have taken me very long to be down to bedrock financially, and with little Jamie on my hands in the bargain, so if I can accept my East Acre with all there is on it from you, you can take what I want to give you today without making any objections concerning it, can't you? I sure can, said Jean, and the twinkle that Jamie knew crept into her eyes. You said two things. What other thing besides a horse? We'll stop right here and you will see, said Jamie. Again they left the streetcar, and this time Jean was led into a tailor shop where she was measured for a proper pair of girls' riding breeches and two coats, one having sleeves and one having none, both of them having fitted bodies and skirts with a bit of flare and nifty pockets. The garments were to be made from a lovely soft blue-gray cloth very nearly the color of the eyes of the youngster who was to wear them. Then, from displayed accessories, Jamie selected two silk shirts 
and a blue and gray tie, and handkerchiefs with borders to match the shirts. Little squeals of delight greeted the fitting of a pair of gray boots with soft folds around the ankles, and stiff tops and gloves with cuffs to match them. Jean looked dubiously at the gloves. She wiggled her fingers and told the truth. It seems a pity for you to spend money on them. I bet a dollar I lose them the first time I start out with them. I don't think that would be showing me much consideration, said Jamie, to value the first gift I ever made you so lightly that you would lose it. I could do better than that with them if you made me a present of a pair of gloves. Well, you've got a lot of pockets, said Jean. You're going to have pockets, too, answered Jamie. And turning to the smiling tailor, he ordered, You're to put inside pockets on those coats and left breast pockets on the outside and plenty of pockets in the breeches. We don't want to give this young lady any chance to lose her handkerchiefs and gloves. As they left the store, Jamie said, Now, we've done a fair job of getting the cart before the horse. We've bought the accessories. Now we'll buy the horse, and after we select the horse, we'll go to a leather shop and buy a saddle and a sporty riding crop. Jean shook her head. Don't spend money on a whip, she said. I don't use em. I guide my horse with my hands. Nevertheless, young lady, said Jamie, there are times when the life of any rider is in danger who is not armed with a good sharp whip. If a horse becomes terrified on the mountains and starts to back over a cliff that would land you in kingdom come, and you had in your hand a good stout whip and could lay on a few cuts that would sting sharply, you might succeed in making that horse forget its fright and carry you forward. That's so, too, agreed Jean instantly. I didn't think about that because I haven't ever ridden much where there was real danger. Queen and I have climbed the mountain some, but Queen has too much sense to back on a body. I never bank on how much sense a horse has, said Janie, because if something comes rolling out unexpectedly and terrifies it so it jumps for self-protection, the damage is done before a horse really knows what has happened. You are never safe on the back of a real horse without a good stout whip. It is a part of the necessary equipment, and whatever your theory of loving-kindness may be, there are some creatures in this world that you cannot manage except by force when they are frightened. Just like Miss Worthington, commented Jean, and I tell you it got my goat to call her Worthington, because I happened to know that her name was Young, just plain, red-haired, snub-nosed, freckle-faced, young. I never did see anybody I couldn't bear quite so hard as that kiddo person. It wasn't so easy to do, but I'll tell the world she got what was coming to her, and I might strike another case just like her. You get the whip. When they arrived at the corral, Jamie went around to the gate. He knew so well where the gate was, that Jean realized that he had been there before, and she realized, too, that the men who came to meet them were acquainted with him.
Jamie spoke to them and said, I want you to become acquainted with Miss Jean Meredith, and I'd like to have you show her the three horses that I looked at the other day. Jean stood entranced as three horses were led before her. They were really ponies, animals the right proportion for her to ride and look well on, and that she would have strength to make obey her will. Now, one at a time, we will saddle these, said Jamie, and you may put in two or three hours riding them. You can try them over and over until you discover which one has the gait that suits you. I've looked them over very carefully. They are all of reasonable age. They are all in good condition. There is very little difference in the price. Then Jamie realized that he was talking to the air. Jean was not hearing a word he was saying. She was standing before the three horses, staring at them. Slowly, she went up to the first one and pulled down its head. She ran her hand over its forehead. She looked deep into its eyes. She drew its ear through her hands. Then she slipped her left hand under the chin and with the right parted the lips and looked at the teeth. Then she went down the side and down the neck and over the chest and down the forelegs. She got the spine line in perspective and looked at the sides and the flanks and the tail, around and over. As a surgeon searches for a hidden disease, the youngster examined those horses, and Jamie realized suddenly that she knew more about horses than he did. She was looking for points that he had not thought about. He stood back in amusement and watched her examine the three horses minutely. When she had finished, she stepped out in front of them. She pointed to one and said, That one has the best temper, but it is easy and slow. That one has a good disposition. It will go steady and it will go all day. I believe it has good wind. Then she looked at the last one. And this one has got a fine, large dose of the devil in him. You won't know when he's going to kick and when he's going to rear, but he won't know when you're going to want to turn a quick curve or slide down a mountainside instead of walking. So maybe that will be even. He'll go the furthest, and he'll keep it up the longest. But it would be a good long while before anyone that owned him could really trust him. All right, said Jamie. So far as I know, that's probably the way it is. Now put the saddle on, and I'll give you two hours to test them. I'm going to go down to the sand and stretch out in the sun for an hour. I've gotten so accustomed to it at this time of day that I miss it if I don't get my sun bath. The salt water I'll pass up for the day. Wait a minute, said Jean. Stay here for a minute. Her nimble feet went flying over in the direction of a corner stand. On her return, she came up to Jamie and handed him a paper bag. Thank you very much, said Jamie gravely, as he accepted the bag. Then he turned to the attendant. Let this young lady, he said, ride each one of these three horses around the track as often as she wants. By the time she has her selection made, I'll be back to escort her home. Anything she wants, will you kindly see to it for her? 
The attendant said that he would, and went to bring a saddle. Jean dug the toe of her shoe in the dust of the corral, and then looked obliquely at Janey. What's the use to rub it in? she asked. And Jamie did not resort to the subterfuge of asking, Rub what in? He happened to know, and he was too much of a Scot to pretend that he didn't know when he did. You die hard, don't you? said Jamie. But if you have been at this subterfuge all your life, I suppose you can't get over it all in a minute. At any rate, I'll explain to you exactly why I rub in the fact that you are a girl, good and hard. I am conceding that you look enough like a boy so that anyone might mistake you for a boy when you are doing your utmost to prove that you are one. The reason I seem to hammer in the fact that you are a girl is because men, among themselves, sometimes grow pretty coarse, and they say things and they do things that they would neither say nor do if they understood that a child of your size among them was a girl. What I am trying to do, Jean, is to give you the same kind of loving care and protection that I'd give you if you were my little sister. Jean looked at Jamie and studied him intently. Then she almost bowled him over. I wouldn't ever be old enough or big enough to be your sweetheart, would I? She asked, as casually as she would have asked for a drink of water. Only for a minute there rushed in a tumult through Jamie's brain a picture of the kind of a sweetheart that the child before him might make ten or twelve years hence, and his head went a little wild. But Scotsmen are noted for saneness and sobriety and integrity, and he held himself and answered steadily, I cannot imagine any sweetheart in the whole world I'd rather have than you, Jean, but it wouldn't be fair to you. I am too much older than you are. Youth demands youth. Nothing else is fair. I have noticed in my experience that things always go wrong when a man is much older than a woman. It isn't fair to a girl to tie her up to a man very nearly old enough to be her father. If I ever marry again, I'm going to marry a woman very near my own age. Was Jamie's mother very near your own age? inquired Jean calmly. Well, considerably nearer than you are, said Jamie. Now you go and ride your horses, and I'll go and take my sun bath, and when you have your horse selected, I'll match it up with the saddle, and I'm not right sure that we didn't make a mistake in ordering the clothes first. Perhaps they should match the horse, too. Jean thought that over. Well, I don't suppose that suit is going to be cut out and made right this minute. Maybe we could change the colors of the things this afternoon by telephone. There was the same cloth in tans and browns, as well as blues and grays. So there was, said Jamie. Maybe we'll want to change it. Now, 
think about your horse and be sure you get the right one. We don't want to find out later that you have a biting brute of a thing that's going to tax your strength every time you go out. You want a horse that will be your friend, that will be some comfort to you, that will love you. Yes, said Jean, that's exactly the kind of horse I do want. I want a horse that will love me like Dad's dog loves him. Well, I doubt, said Jamie, if you will find a horse with the capacity for love that a dog has. A dog has been around man so many centuries and has had so much attention that he has come to be almost human. There are times when I've seen a dog think. There are times when I've almost heard a dog talk. There are times when they have managed sounds that told what they wanted. I'll tell the world, said Jean. Dad's dog can every time, and so could Mother's dog, Chum. Then she turned to the horses, and Jamie turned toward the beach. End of chapter 20